Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there, and Happy New Year to all of you, wherever you may live in the world. Hard to believe 2023 is now upon us. I certainly hope that uh, this year of 2023 will bring all of you um, good fortunes. But of course, we also have to be reminded that, um, that there are no guarantees in life. But no matter what the circumstances are, we certainly would want um, as many good fortunes to come our way as possible. So I certainly hope uh, for all of you that uh, 2023 will um, not only get off to a good start, but will uh, continue to go um, as smoothly as uh, possible. Well, you know, here we are um, talking once again about Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. In our uh, next uh, podcast segment, we're going to be learning about the triumphs and the tragedies behind privateering. It's so easy sometimes to focus on all of the triumphs, but yet we forget about um, tragedies. And not just when we think of tragedies, we think of, you know, people's lives being lost in a battle, whether it's by land or by sea. But we often forget that uh, tragedies can occur in some instances beyond man's control. Uh, Sometimes even the weather can um, wreak havoc on man Uh, or in this case on a uh, ship's captain and his crew when they aren't expecting um, a storm to occur. Yes, you could be out on the waters in December, but that doesn't automatically mean that a a snowstorm, that doesn't mean that you have uh, advanced uh, warnings of of an impending storm. we, we must keep in mind that uh, many years ago or centuries ago, we didn't have what, were, what was called a uh, National Weather Service. So if you went out onto the waters, you obviously went out on your own risk. So we do have to be uh, reminded that while there were risks taken, um, some people came back home to be able to tell the stories of the fortunes being the triumphs, but not everybody came back. Although it might be fair to say that some who did come home not only shared about the triumphs, but also had to report the tragedies. It might be fair to say that some crews some crews made it back, but not 100% intact. Of course, if I keep on uh, rambling at the rate I'm going, there may not even be a need to have a, a podcast uh, segment with regards to triumphs and tragedies pertaining to privateering. So uh, let's get uh, the show rolling here and be prepared for our first uh, question for this uh, podcast segment to kick off the uh, new year of 2023. Here we go. Did privateers sail from multiple ports? I think it's a very fair answer um, with that, and the answer being yes. It is fair to say that privateers sailed from multiple ports not only in America, but also um, overseas. But when I think of uh, ports, I tend to think more so with America during the time of the American Revolution. So the ports that often come to my mind out of um, America, or rather I should say, even though, yes, um, our forefathers at this time or the uh, members of the Continental Congress, we have already declared our separation from um, England we would like to think of ourselves as a as not just the United Colonies, but perhaps the United States, but of course Britain and Parliament 
don't even want to recognize us. I mean, after all, we've uh, com in their eyes, we've committed the ultimate sin, treason. We've uh, declared our separation against them, and so therefore, we know that we don't have any protection against the crown. I mean, the only we don't have any protection um, being on the side of the crown. The only people who might have protection with the crown are those whom have remained loyal uh, to the crown and have already uh, sought uh, refuge um, in other places, most notably Halifax, Nova Scotia. They know that, uh, historians know that many loyalists, um, especially from Boston and perhaps New York, went northward uh, to uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia to resettle. They also would have gone to Canada and there are um, a handful of loyalists who went 3,000 miles across the ocean to England. Um, I do know that uh, Edmund Randolph's parents, uh, they disowned him because he was a patriot and Edmund's parents were uh, loyalists. So they went to England and sadly, um, young Edmund Randolph never... Um, he never saw his parents again, but the irony to it is that when his father died, right before his father died, the story has it, it that I learned in Williamsburg, that when his father, right before his father died, his father told um, told uh, proper personnel in England that he wanted uh, to be brought back to uh, Virginia to be buried in his family cemetery, and that did happen, folks. So it turns out that okay, yes, he. Uh, the elder Randolph and his wife, you know, left and never saw their son again, all in the name of loyalties. But they were brought back uh, to England, brought back to Virginia to be interred in the uh, family cemetery. So, but as for um, as for port cities in America, of course, in the eyes of um, in the eyes of those whom have um, taken up the ultimate sacrifice in terms of um, in terms of um, Wanting, not wanting to be called colonial America, but the United States, the new United States, that is. Uh, primary port cities that came to my mind are uh, Baltimore and Annapolis, Maryland, Little Egg Harbor, New Jersey, New London, Connecticut, Boston, Newburyport, and Salem, Massachusetts. Of course, this one wasn't mentioned, but th that's not to say that privateers uh, went um, out from this uh, port village in Massachusetts being Gloucester. Of course, when I think of Gloucester, I think of the infamous uh, perfect storm that occurred from 1991. Then you have other port um, cities like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I believe I also mentioned uh, Newburyport in Salem, Massachusetts. Then you have Newport in Providence, uh, Rhode Island. Just a handful of, um, of uh, port cities, but it but in terms of those cities, just um, in terms of those port cities and towns uh, mentioned, that's where the privateers tended to sail um, sail out of um, the most. Now, despite the large scores or tens of thousands of privateersmen whom hunted down British ships from 1776 to the Revolutionary War's end, only a select few returned to their hometown ports with memorable stories to tell. Yeah, I think it is very fair to say that um, I don't know what the percentage is, though, of those who whom ultimately came back, but it's got to be a small number because what we have to remember is that even the those who were engaged in acts of privateering were not only sacrificing their own lives on a personal level, but they were sacrificing their own lives for those um, 
three for those um, living along the coastal uh, villages and those living uh, further inland of the coastal villages. So they uh, may not have been on an actual battlefield, but being out on open waters, they were um, willing to uh, pay the ultimate uh, sacrifices. Here's uh, somebody that most of you do know. He's famous, but yet most of you probably would not have uh, given it a thought that he, that this individual would have um, partaken in ownership of privateer vessels. It never came across my mind either, too, until having read the book. So here we go. Did Benedict Arnold have ownership of any privateer vessels? It turns out, folks, that Benedict Arnold was part owner of one privateer named the General McDougal. Hang tight for just a moment. So what do you know? That infamous Benedict Arnold is doing more than just uh, partaking and um, act. Is he's doing more than just partaking in uh, battlefield activities by land? He has part ownership in a privateer vessel known as the General McDougal. Something else that most of us didn't know, and I didn't know this too about Benedict Arnold, although most of us, when we think of Benedict Arnold, we think of his um, acts of treason when he defected over to the side of the British during the latter part of the Revolutionary War. But early on, uh, when the war itself broke out, uh, Benedict Arnold did go about commanding a handful of American ships, most notably at the Battle of Valcor Island on New York's Lake Champlain, up in the, the northern part of uh, New York State. And uh, for those of you who aren't sure where Lake Champlain is, I'm, I'm sure most of you do know, but I'm sure some of you, if, if you're not sure about where Lake Champlain is, it's not far from, um, it borders between New York State and Vermont, because there is Lake Champlain on the New York side, and there's Lake Champlain on the Vermont side. But um, Lake Champlain on the American side is, um, is surrounded by the village known as uh, Plattsburgh, which is closer to uh, the United States-Canada line. So that, if that gives you any hint of where Lake Champlain is in terms of uh, geography, hopefully that will uh, help you out there. But yes, Valcor Island um, is on uh, Lake Champlain, and Benedict Arnold did command a handful of American ships at this battle. Uh, the battle, or rather I should say the engagement itself, took place on October the 11th of 1776. So that's really, in a sense, three months after, um, after the delegates from Congress had finally come together unanimously in declaring their uh, separation from England. So the Battle of... Um, Valcor Island on Lake Champlain uh, officially took place on October the 11th of 1776. The battle itself uh, is considered by historians to be one of the first naval battles fought in the Revolutionary War, and the first by the United States Navy. Although this battle resulted in a British victory, Benedict Arnold's defensive schemes of protecting Lake Champlain prevented further British advancement towards the upper Hudson River Valley. So something good came out of this, not only for the Americans, but for Benedict Arnold. So yes, we could say that had it not been for Benedict Arnold's defensive scheme measures in protecting Lake Champlain, in other words, had he not retreated to um, a further, um, more secure location where um, 
what was left of his ships and men to fight had he not uh, retreated further uh, and per kept pursuing the fight. It's fair to say that even Arnold himself and those um, men and their um, those ships and their crew would have ultimately become um, British prisoners of war. So it's very fair to say that uh, Benedict Arnold made the uh, right move and uh, retreating when he did so that he could protect um, what he could have Lake Champlain but prevent the uh, British advancement um, along the upper uh, Hudson River Valley. Now, given the success that Benedict Arnold did have, it may not have been 100% of a success, but I, it's fair to say that there was probably 50% success in what he did at Lake Champlain, but because of that... Uh, two privateer owners did go about naming their vessels after Benedict Arnold himself. And this was all during the time in which Arnold himself was still serving on the side of the Americans. Vessel number one came out of Newburyport, Massachusetts. The other one came out of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. The Newburyport uh, vessel, well, the General Arnold uh, vessel out of Newburyport, I should say, was commissioned on April the 16th of 1778. It was owned by a gentleman named Nathaniel Tracy, whom had an impeccable privateering record during the Revolutionary War from 1775 to 1783. How about this, folks? He was the owner of 23 letters of marquee to 24 privateers. Tracy's vessels alone seized 120 British ships whose cargoes and freight ended up getting sold at an unheard rate in 18th century times. Listen to this, folks. $3,950,000. I don't know how much more that would be in today's money, but to but for all of those uh, prizes, based upon the 120 uh, enemy vessels that were seized throughout the course of the war, to get sold at an unheard rate of nearly 3 of just shy of four million is very, very remarkable. That to me would have been a um, unheard number for that day and time, but nonetheless, it's a unique first. Now, as for that, to me is a success uh, and a triumph. The other General Arnold uh, vessel sadly uh, ended in a tragedy, and I and there is a story to tell about it that must not go uh, ignored. So. For the General Arnold out of Boston, she was equipped with uh, 20 cannons to a crew of 105. She sailed out from Boston on December 24, 1778. Christmas Eve, folks. And think about it, 200 and just, just a little over 244 years ago. The um, vessel, uh, it was a, uh, another um, ship accompanied her on on what was going to be a joint um, journey on a joint six-month cruise. It was the other vessel was known as the Sloop Revenge. James McGee, um, being of 28 years of age, he was the uh, captain of the General Arnold, and he was no stranger to the waters. He had uh, previously, or rather just recently, commanded a sloop called the Independence in 1777, capturing three enemy prizes. So that's a triumph for him on a, um, well, I don't know if I'd say on a personal level, but for him and the crew of the Independence. Now, December 25th of 1778 is a day that will probably live in infamy 
not just for those aboard uh, the General Arnold that's um, that left out of Boston, but it will also be a day of infamy for those whom witnessed the um, the unthinkable, or I don't know if I'd say the unthinkable is the right word, but who witnessed um, the unexpected that um, that would go about uh, resulting in acts of heroism that we will get to here soon. So uh, let's be prepared to um, learn about uh, what unraveled on uh, December the 25th of 1778 involving the General Arnold out of Boston. Well, for starters, a nor'easter came in where the vessel, where both vessels, being that of the General Arnold and the sloop Revenge, were no longer joined together. The Revenge um, survived, but the General Arnold... Um, would undergo um, would undergo an experience that um, that I could tell you right now at this moment resulted in some crewmen surviving and many who didn't. But we need to understand how it all unfolded. Now I know just a second ago I mentioned something uh, called a nor'easter. I think most of us have definitely heard about nor'easters in the news. Well, what are nor'easters? Well. It is weather-related. They are uh, extra-tropical cyclones that are capable of producing, for starters, mild showers to severe gales or strong winds at speeds of up to 39 to 54 miles per hour. Thunderstorms, blizzards, you know, wintry weather, tornadoes, coastal floodings, even coastal erosion. These storms, uh, being that of a nor'easter, form, usually form within 100 miles of the shore between North Carolina and Massachusetts. And nor'easters, and this is the season for nor'easters, folks, but nor'easters usually start around November and go through March. So that's about a five-month period, folks. So for the General Arnold out of Boston, she was uh, going through a nor'easter. So Captain McGee of the General Arnold, in the midst of the nor'easter event, he went about sailing for Plymouth Harbor, where he intended to seek shelter from the storm. Okay, this is a good idea. You know, we're not going to go out into the heart of the, of the water, but we, but we need to do something. We've got to get some shelter immediately. However... December 25th, 1778, was going to be one of those days where Mother Nature simply was just not going to cooperate. And when, and when a nor'easter occurs, it is very fair to say that um, there is no signs of letting up and no signs of cooperation. This storm picked up with further intensity as the winds built up and the seas got bigger. General um, Captain McGee gave all of his crewmen uh, essential duties to perform and and the crewmen cooperated even under the most trying of circumstances and despite the crew's best efforts to get everything under control the general arnold crashed into um, white flats shoal and most of you probably know what a shoal is um, but it is easy sometimes to forget um, certain basic terms uh, I have to be reminded of because it's, you know, it's very easy to think that when a ship hits something, um, they usually can spot it. But 
a lot of times when a ship hits something, they can't really detect it 100% through. And usually when a ship hits a shoal, that's always, usually to me, it's a hidden um, object. It, a shoal, for starters, is a, um, it, it's a uh, sandbank. Uh, rocks within a sandbank but a shoal in this case being a sandbank in the water at low tide so this is what happened here that the general arnold crashed into a white into the white flat sh shoal being a sandbank at low tide not far from plymouth's harbor entry the problem though with the ship or, or the vessel is that the hole being the bottom punctured so because uh, the hole has been punctured, intense waters came about where the waves, whose forces were so strong, you know, and we're not talking um, average uh, water temperature here, folks. We're talking frigid water temperatures. The conditions are just right. The conditions have to be right whenever a nor'easter uh, forms. So these intense waters have come about because of the waves and the waves' forces are so strong that, get this, folks, that the crewmen's clothes got covered with ice. That's how serious and dangerous the weather conditions have become. We're not just getting hit with uh, wet water and our clothes being wet. Now the crewmen um, are seeing their uh, clothes getting covered with ice. Panic, desperation, has soon uh, is now kicked in to where the crewmen are taking their frustrations out on each other. That, to me, is dangerous, because once the crewmen start taking their frustrations out on each other, no matter how hard you try as a captain to restore order, in times like these, it's, it, it's like that old saying, it's every man for himself now. Although um, the crewmen did um, make a heroic effort by, um, by modifying... Um, the matter by using the vessel's sail and they draped it over them for cover protection as a means of staying warm. Now talk about innovation right there, folks. The only problem is that no matter what the crew did on this night, it just wasn't enough to, to save. Not just everybody, but, but sadly, it's even with all, even with the, I don't know how big the sail is, but it hopefully it's an, it's big enough to where everybody can get some form of warmth cover. But the measure alone didn't prevent the first man from dying, being that of 31-year-old John Russell of Barnstable, Massachusetts. He was sadly the first to die. More than likely, it could be fair to say that he might have died from, uh, I don't know, maybe hypothermia. He could have died from a frostbite. But... Sadly, the uh, if he had uh, if he was able to use whatever he was able to of the sail and staying warm, it just wasn't enough to um, to protect um, whatever um, parts of his um, leg may have been exposed to the cold weather. Because you know we have to think about it too. You know people weren't wearing long johns back then. I mean they wore what what they were able to wear in terms of staying warm. But we didn't have, you know, three and four layers of clothing on um, in, with regards to adverse conditions like these. Now, the day after, on December the 26th of, of 1778, the General Arnold lied motionless. 
Now, usually when I think of a ship lying motionless, it would, be, it would mean low tide. And of course, when it's high tide, that's when um, there's enough water for the ship, obviously, to be able to pick up some speed and have, in 18th century times, enough of a favorable wind to where it could uh, move out into the water, into the heart of the water. But unfortunately, with the way uh, the storm has come about, this nor'easter, it's uh, produced some bigger um, effects, wintry effects. Well, for starters, the General Arnold isn't lying motionless by means of a low tide, but it's lying motionless due to the presence of ice, thick ice, folks. The ice is so thick that the ship can't even, um, it can't break through. It's uh, stuck frozen solid to the, uh, to the water. Now, the men aboard are still alive, but how are they going? So if the sail itself has not worked, what else could you do for warmth? The only real um, effective means for, for trying to stay warm now, folks, is for men to huddle together, like in groups of five or six. In other words, Whatever whatever clothing they have on and whatever jackets they might have access to, and they need to uh, be able to stay next to one another as a means of um, warmth. That might only work for a few hours because this uh, brutal cold weather is going to uh, make its make its uh, effects uh, be known um, even more so, and I. Sadly, have to report this, that on December the 26th, 60 men died on the General Arnold. 60 men died, folks. How do you think they might have died from? They didn't die from disease. It's fair to say that most of these men died from a lack of warmth. You know, the you know they died from hypothermia. Uh, they died from, um, from, probably from frostbite. Uh, frostbite can have uh, powerful effects, but 60 men died, and I hate. And the sad part is, is that many were found connected to one another because they were seeking shelter and warmth um, from uh, one another side by side. So it's, it was one thing to see a body aboard your ship of a deceased man, but. To me, it's even more powerful, frightening, and sad to see that to see 60 men, not maybe not all 60, but perhaps half or more than half um, of those bodies connected to one another because they had um, because those men were trying to seek warmth in every way possible, but the only way of doing it was by um, huddling together. Those whom survived stacked. They were forced to do this, folks. I mean, you don't have a lot of luxuries in a time of crisis. But, so, but those who survived were forced to stack some of the bodies, the dead bodies, into a modified wall as a means of protection against the howling winds. Despite their best intentions, more men would soon die. Now think about this, folks. We don't have a... Um, we don't have any uh, modern-day electronic equipment to call out to, to what would be the United States Coast Guard and say, Mayday, Mayday, we're in the middle of a terrible crisis. Here's where our uh, coordinates are. How soon can a chopper come out and save us? We don't have this luxury just yet. So 
so I, I can't imagine, you know, being out on this ship and now all of a sudden seeing not only 60 men die and seeing many of them connected to one another, but also trying to partake in a modified situation where I'm helping out my the crew that's surviving, that has already survived and stacking some of the dead bodies into a modified wall to, to try to uh, see if that would cut down on the howling winds. But even that alone is a short-lived uh, measure. So who is going to come to the rescue of those who have survived uh, the uh, General Arnold out of Boston? Well, Plymouth's residents performed heroic deeds. Plymouth isn't far from Boston. I know so because uh, my wife and I, when we went to Cape Cod nearly 11 years ago uh, with some friends, we uh, took a, um, a day trip to a Plymouth Plantation, very well worth visiting. So Plymouth's residents performed heroic deeds. For starters, they used uh, wood planks to connect sheets of floating ice where they rescued those living to bringing in the deceased. Seventy-two frozen corpses, folks, were placed in the Mill River to thaw out. Seventy-two, folks, that's just unreal. By the time these, uh, those corpses thawed out, they were sent to the courthouse where they were laid in uh, coffins. Believe it or not, folks, Captain McGee, he survived to where he ended up leading uh, three more privateer um, missions during the Revolutionary War. They do know, and all folks, that uh, historians now know that out of the 105 men aboard the ship, 81 died. So uh, after the 72 frozen corpses were brought in, nine more would. So I did the math, and that's the tragedy here, folks, is that 77% of the crew aboard the uh, General Arnold out of Boston, Massachusetts, died. They died uh, by means of um, having frozen to death, trying to seek uh, shelter uh, through um, huddling together for uh, warmth purposes. 77% died, only 23% survived. So yes, there were those who survived and lived to tell the tale, not of any of, uh, they may have told the tale of triumph and how they survived, but the greater story was having to tell of the tragedy and how so many died. But I can also say there was a triumph and that the and that Plymouth's residents came to the rescue of those 24 men and Captain McGee being one of them whom survived. So that to me is a story of both triumph and tragedy. Before um, enlisting as a privateersman in late 1778, what else had Mr. John Greenwood done at the Revolutionary War's onset, being, um, you know, at the beginning of the war? Now, I know most of you probably don't even know who John Greenwood is. I didn't know anything about the guy until I read the book. And you're going to be blown away at, at Mr. John Greenwood and what, maybe not so much he accomplished, but what he had done more so um, after the war. I think that's where his biggest accomplishments lie. But nonetheless, why don't we learn about him? For starters, his parents uh, sent him from the hometown of Boston to Falmouth, which is now present-day Portland, Maine. And let's keep in mind, folks, uh, the state of Maine at one time, years ago, was part of Massachusetts. Maine didn't become its own state until the year 1820 when we had the uh, Missouri Compromise that uh, that um, that uh, brought Missouri uh, into uh, the United States uh, and Maine um, as well. 
Of course, those uh, compromises in the 19th century were, how do I say, not to get off track here and not to sound political, but those compromises, uh, the Missouri Compromise of 1820 was just one of a handful of compromises that um, staved off uh, civil, uh, staved off uh, the Civil War for a number of years where there had to be, um, for every free state that was admitted into the Union, there had to be a slave state, and I can't imagine all the politics that went into that. But just keep in mind that um, Maine was once part of Massachusetts, folks, and it stayed that way up until 1820. So, yes, um, Mr. Greenwood, um, his parents sent him from his hometown of Boston to Falmouth, which we now know as present-day Portland, Maine, to live with an uncle whom worked as a cabinet maker, including uh, serving as a lieutenant in the local militia. So his uncle seems to be pretty well um, known and respected. Young John Greenwood uh, helped out um, his uncle by building cabinets during the day and come evening time went to the militia drill field where he got paid to play the fife while the militiamen practiced their marching exercises. By 1775, he officially, that is Mr. Young John Greenwood, officially began serving as a fifer at age 16, and from 1775 to 1778, young John Greenwood served in the Continental Army under Captain Theodore Bliss's 26th Massachusetts Regiment Company. Now, John Greenwood was born in May of 1760. What I find interesting here about that is when he was born in May of 1760, who was King of England? It wasn't George III. It was his grandfather, George II. So that would have been King George, King George II and uh, Queen Caroline. So John Greenwood was born... Essentially, he was born five months before England's George III got officially coronated as England's new king. The Seven Years' War is still going on. Now, I know I mentioned earlier that um, John Greenwood was sent to um, live with his uncle, and the reason for that was because he had a bit of a troubling childhood. To me, um, it could be fair to say that maybe young John Greenwood was causing a lot of mischief at home. And perhaps his parents had done everything they could have done to have gotten him on the right track. So perhaps they felt that maybe he needed better exposure in terms of um, more uh, order, uh, something that perhaps his uncle could offer that maybe his parents could not simply do. So nonetheless, it seems like that perhaps things got better by going to live with his uncle, but something else I thought was interesting about John Greenwood is that uh, he was very close friends with a fellow by the name of Samuel Maverick. Who's Samuel Maverick? Well, Samuel Maverick was one of the five uh, victims of that infamous Boston Massacre from March 5th of 1770. So it seems like that John Greenwood had been hanging out with the wrong crowd of people. Historians know that Samuel Maverick was a troublemaker. And um, if you read about, if you read uh, Eric Hinderaker's Boston's Massacre or Dan Abrams's John Adams Under Fire, you will certainly learn everything there is to know about uh, Samuel Maverick, including the other four um, who uh, were shot at that infamous, um, at that infamous um 
incident that occurred on the night of March 5, 1770. One of the men whom was shot that night actually lived for about another week before he died, being uh, Patrick Carr. And what was ironic there was that Patrick Carr was forced to recite a uh, biblical verse that gave him benefit of the clergy, meaning that he had been forgiven for his actions and was told never to partake in any kind of uh, riotous activity again. And, um, and because of what he provided to uh, British authorities who were trying to get their version of the story, they were, were going to have him um, take the stand when the, trial, when the time of the trial arrived, which didn't do so until October of 1770, but sadly he died. It would have been interesting to have known what Patrick Carr would have, ta- would have uh, revealed on the stand, but what I can tell you is that he um, did admit to uh, British authorities that, um, that the protesters, or the dissidents, being the colonists or the people of Boston, who were there hurling the oyster shells and the blocks of ice, that they were the ones really instigating it. Of course, you know, the textbooks always told us that it was uh, the British soldiers harassing the people of Boston left and right. And while it did happen, to me, if one asked me who's really at fault, I'd have to say both parties were. But I also understand why the British, those British soldiers uh, were forced to, to stand their own ground and had no other choice but to fire into the crowd. So nonetheless, uh, John Greenwood was very close friends with Samuel Maverick, who was one of the five victims of the infamous Boston Massacre. Late 1778, John Green, Greenwood is 18 years old. He goes about signing on with the Boston privateer sloop Cumberland. Okay, so he does have some privateering experience now. He serves as a steward's mate. In other words, by serving as a steward's mate, he's looking after other crewmen as well as serving uh, meals aboard the ship. He also has a rank of midshipman. Hey, the U.S. Naval Academy, they're known as the midshipmen. Uh, A midshipman is one who basically... He performs, he, well, back then it would have been just he, but, you know, nowadays the Naval Academy, it's both male and female, but a midshipman's duties is to inspect every part or component to a vessel, including watching over um, crewmen as they perform multiple duties. As for John Greenwood, he served under Captain John Manley, whom earned fame for commanding the Lee, which was part of Washington's inaugural Navy fleet, Early January of 1779, the Cumberland left Boston for Barbados with the intent on capturing British merchantmen sailing, or I should say heading back to England. January 26th of 1779, the British frigate Pomona, with 36 cannons and 300 men, embarked on a never-ending pursuit of the Cumberland, where by evening time the Pomona fired at the Cumberland, resulting in her causing multiple balls, or I should say cannonballs, to inflict mass damage to the Cumberland sails, including her hull. The American crewmen, including Greenwood himself, went aboard Pomona as prisoners, then sent to jail in Barbados, where Greenwood stayed five months. I can't imagine back then staying in jail for five months. I mean, the fact that he even survived that whole time is remarkable. Think about it. <laughs> There's no, there are no telephones. So we don't, we're not in any situation to say, uh, do I get my one call? Oh, yes, here's your call. You might be lucky if you can write a letter back home to your family and say, uh, here's my predicament or here's my situation. So there's no means of, uh, of a wire transfer, folks. There's no means of sending money to get you out. 
your best bet of getting out of jail might be that of a prisoner exchange. Well, it just so happens that in June of 1778, John Greenwood is released as part of a prisoner exchange and taken, or rather I should say sent back to um, Martinique where he uh, reconnected with an old uh, school friend whom uh, secured him. I meant to say June of 1779, folks, pardon me, because... um, I had said uh, early on in that, uh, January of 1779 that, that the vessel he was on, the Cumberland, um, left out of Boston. So uh, do forgive me if I uh, got my years mixed up there. But luckily I corrected it. So anyways, June of, 17, June of 1779, John Greenwood is released as part of a prisoner exchange and was taken to Martinique where he reconnected with an old school friend whom secured him a spot aboard a brig, taking him back to New England. He served on various other privateers, from uh, the Tartar to the General Lincoln, but his time at sea really was one of fluctuations. In other words, he had, you know, he had um, some good moments, and then he had moments where, where there were voyages, but it didn't result in anything uh, extravagant. So it it was really one of those careers that um, that was marked by a lot of highs and some lows or marked by some highs and some lows, but it was never really one of um, 100% uh, good fortunes. However, after the Revolutionary War's end, um, John Greenwood went on to become a dentist. Yes, folks, believe it or not, he you know we did have dentists in colonial times, but dentists probably did more than just uh, work on your teeth. It just so happens that one of John Greenwood's most well-known clients was none other than George Washington, whom Greenwood tended to from 1789 to 1799. Greenwood was with Washington during both of his presidential terms. And believe it or not, folks, we all know that, yes, George Washington did wear false teeth. I think it's fair to say that a lot of us have been told that maybe he only had one set of dentures. But it turns out, folks, that Washington himself wore a total of four sets of dentures. All of those sets of dentures that he wore, being those four, were made and fitted by uh, Doc... Probably be fair to say now to call him Dr. Greenwood. So that's what I'm going to call him. They were all made and fitted by Dr. John Greenwood himself... Greenwood used various materials from other human beings' teeth, lead, gold, to elephant, walrus, hippopotamus ivory, including uh, springs to help uh, the teeth open. I cannot imagine being in George Washington's shoes and having, and, and, and the teeth that he had, knowing that they weren't re- the real thing. I, it might be fair to say that I think I learned that right before Washington died, he only had one of his original teeth. All the other teeth were made from um, various uh, materials that I just described a moment ago. But historians do know that um, he would have taken his teeth out uh, before going to bed. But it is fair to say that, uh, that a portrait of him that we now see on the $1 bill, yes, he is smiling, but it's not 100%. 
of a smile, and it might be fair to say due to the uh, puffiness and swelling in his cheeks because of the dentures he was wearing. It is probably fair to say that if it hadn't been for um, for John Greenwood, I'm not sure who Washington might have turned to uh, for dental help, but it might be fair to say that Washington may not have gotten the most, um, he might not have gotten the best of care had it not been for Dr. Greenwood, in my opinion. Now, as for Washington's dentures, we've all been, we were all told for years that they were made, out, made from wood. They weren't. They know that for a fact, folks, that Washington's dentures were never made from wood. But what we do know is that Washington himself had dental issues throughout his adult life, throughout his entire adult life. As a matter of fact, uh, at the age of 24, I read online that he, um, his first uh, letter of complaining about his teeth uh, occurred at the age of 24. So the man lived to be 67 years old, which was old age for that time. But, uh, but I just can't imagine uh, what kind of dental issues had plagued him throughout his adult life. And to think that uh, the father of our country, uh, the commander of the Continental Army, was still able to accomplish all of those things, despite having, uh, bad, um, despite having uh, four sets of uh, dentures, is remarkable unto itself. Well, moving on now to um, a vessel that um, was the most successful of all privateers during the Revolutionary War. Let's find out about this one. Uh, what privateer went about becoming the most successful of all privateers during the Revolutionary War? It was the Holker, H-O-L-K-E-R. The Holker was owned by Blair McLennican. And we learned earlier uh, from a previous podcast about how uh, successful uh, Blair McLennican was as a merchant. The Holker brought in uh, 71 prizes over four years. She had four captains on 11 cruises total. The vessel itself captured 10 prizes on one cruise alone, resulting in roughly 2 million pounds come the time of auction. One captured ship alone resulted in seizing mass quantities of flour and beef on board that was intended for the British Army, and guess what? That, those uh, provisions of flour and beef all went instead to the Continental Army. So let's just be reminded of the fact, folks, that you know it's one thing to capture an enemy ship, but let's not always think about the gold and the silver. Let's think about the essential provisions that are actually going to help uh, a side that may not have the same numbers as the British, but yet this side is still in the game, being that of the Continental Army. So the flour and beef, yeah, it'll go a long way because um, we do have to be reminded of the fact that you know we still have people in, in this war who are not loyal to the, um, the side of the Patriots. They're loyalists, king and country, and we have neutrals who don't want to take a side but yet are very hesitant about giving uh, the Continental Army any kind of uh, proper provisions that would uh, ensure uh, survival long term. Early May of 1781 saw Blair McLennican get bad news. Mr. McLennican learned through Rivington's New York Royal Gazette that the Holker got captured by HMS Fox, but one month later, the Holker made it safely into Philadelphia, which, um, which probably um, gave um, Mr. McLennican all the relief in the world that was needed. However, two years later, March 27th of 17, or rather March 2nd of 1783, the Holker's glorious run altogether came to an end. 
she fell victim to the HMS Alkman during a storm that destroyed the Hulker's hull. She was no longer operable. But nonetheless, what a run the Hulker had. We're not far from getting to the end, but uh, this last part is going to um, really blow you all away. I don't know if it's a triumph or a tragedy. It could be both, but it will impact someone on a big scale. Who was Thomas Graves? Well, he is a British captain whom commanded the British sloop of war HMS Savage, which had 16 six-pounder cannon, six cannons. Captain Graves was known for harassing Americans to destroying their property, and during a five-week span come spring of 1781, Captain Graves and two other British naval ships went up and down the Potomac River where they burned plantations, houses, warehouses to various other enemy properties located near the river, river banks. Captain Graves welcomed all enslaved peoples to join the British. But here's the, the irony to it, folks. Here, um, isn't there someone who has an estate that is that you can go to today and tour? Yeah, isn't that Mount Vernon? What happened to Mount Vernon? Did uh, Captain uh, Graves and his crew destroy Mount Vernon? It turns out, folks, no. Mount Vernon was the only plantation spared along the Potomac River. Why was Mount Vernon spared? Well, it just so happens that Lund Washington, who was a cousin of George Washington's, witnessed Captain Graves' men land across the Potomac River on the Maryland side, only to torch scores of homes. But if that was awkward enough and scary, or rather I should say scary enough, Captain Graves had men um, land across on the Virginia side. They came up to uh, Mount Vernon along the riverbanks. They demanded that Lund Washington himself provide them with, with proper essentials, being like food and um, and other anything else uh, as a means to ensure their survival. Lund Washington himself failed to, at first failed to comply, but quickly changed his mind. On one hand, I don't, you know, failure to comply obviously would have meant uh, the enemy's ultimate intentions would have come about. That is burning Mount Vernon altogether. But Lund Washington came aboard. He did something else. He changed. He probably may have gotten this that verbal warning. Okay, if you don't want to uh, comply with us, then you know we can always burn your house. We can burn this estate. And then he probably said, "Oh, oh hold on. Uh, what, what would you like for me to do?" Well, what does Lund Washington do? Well, he comes aboard um, the uh, the uh, ship HMS Savage. I'm going to say he does. He comes aboard with a live chicken for for Captain Graves, whom treated Lund kindly. Captain Graves revealed to cousin uh, Lund Washington that he had, uh, George's cousin Lund, that he had the utmost respect for General Washington. Lund went further <laughs> by sending a boat to the savage. Okay, so he, instead of going on to the savage, he, he's going to send a boat to the savage that's filled with sheep, hogs, and other provisions. You know, this might seem nice, folks, but to me, it's appeasement. Lund is trying to please the British. He's not thinking about the well-being of 
not just himself, but perhaps of his cousin and perhaps of other uh, Washington family members and relatives uh, who are related to the Washingtons. It turns out that 17 enslaved uh, people of George Washington's also escaped. Do any of you all think George Washington himself will learn about this? Or rather, the general himself will learn? The commander of the Continental Army? Yes, he will learn about this. Nothing escapes the general. Once General Washington learned of what took place at Mount Vernon, he responded with an angry letter to Cousin Lund, lambasting him for giving the enemy so many provisions just to ensure that his estate was to be spared. George Washington himself would have preferred that Mount Vernon got burnt to the ground versus family, or I should say extended family, engaging in acts of appeasement as a means to satisfy the enemy whose real deliberate intentions were on destroying everything in their plain sight, not leaving anything, not leaving anyone behind. And a state itself, in my opinion, and even Washington probably would have, would have um, interpreted this too, George Washington, folks, would have been all right if his estate had been burnt, because an estate could be replaced. But one's personal image being that of General Washington's, given that his cousin, family, were giving the British provisions just as a means to spare the estate from being burned, that onto itself is bad publicity. Washington doesn't have time for, bad, for a bad image. In other words, the last thing he needs to have, uh, we call it going on amongst members of Congress, because I'm sure members of Congress learned about this, but the last thing he would have wanted were members of Congress to say, uh-oh, Washington's got family of his giving stuff to the enemy, perhaps aiding and abetting, harboring. If Washington's own extended family, being that of relatives, cousins, are helping the enemy, then can we really trust George Washington as the commander of the Continental Army? So, again... George Washington would have preferred having his estate being burnt because an estate could be replaced. It may take time, but what probably won't take time is uh, trying, what might take an eternity in terms of time is getting the image restored. For George Washington, he just simply does not have time for a bad image. So to me, I see this as more of a tragedy in terms of bad judgment. If I were Lund Washington, I would have said absolutely not. Yes, there's a chance that Lund Washington might have been taken prisoner. And who's to say that he might have gotten um, out as a prisoner exchange? But just remember, uh, in this case, yes, maybe this state would have been able to have been replaced. But for George Washington, everything was on the line. And that meant personal image as well. Well, that, uh, that uh, wraps it up here for this uh, podcast uh, segment. Uh, thank you uh, for spending time with me on this uh, New Year's Day. Uh, and again, hard to believe we are already into the year 2023. When I'm on the air again next, we're going to be talking about um, a chapter called The Lion Roars. It'll be interesting to see uh, what kind of um, information we learn about. But of course, to me, when a lion roars, that means that the lion himself or herself is making it clear that he or she does not want um, any outsider whom the animal itself sees as a threat not to get any closer. So 
uh, when I'm on the air again next, we'll learn um, some more uh, fascinating information behind Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. Uh, thank you for your time as always. Thank you for being such ardent listeners, and I hope all of you have a good rest of your day. Take care for now.